From 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR, this is Lake Effect. I'm Joy Powers. Today marks three years since a police shooting in Kenosha that sparked protests and unrest. We'll examine what police community relations look like today. I wish I could say three years later, we've made these leaps and bounds and policing is very different in this community, but I continue to question. We'll speak with voters as many eyes fall on Wisconsin for the first Republican primary debate. Plus, we'll explore some of Wisconsin's caves. All of that is coming up on Lake Effect. But first, here are today's headlines. This is Lake Effect from 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. I'm Joy Powers, and thank you so much for joining us. It's been three years since Jacob Blake, a black man, was shot several times in the back and paralyzed by a white Kenosha police officer. Three years ago, the nation was already seeing protests against police brutality and racism as a result of the deaths of Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, and Ahmaud Arbery. The shooting of Jacob Blake sparked several nights of protest in Kenosha and surrounding cities. On the three-year anniversary of Blake's shooting, WUWM race and ethnicity reporter Taryn Powell talks with Kenosha activist and executive director of Leaders of Kenosha, Tanya McLean, about what the relationship is like between community members and Kenosha police. I'm wondering if you think anything has changed between how Kenosha police interact with Black Kenosha residents. Considering in 2022, I'm just going to like pull out a couple of examples, right? We had that incident where an off-duty Kenosha officer knelt on the neck of a Black teen girl to try to restrain her during a school fight. And in the last month or so, we have this situation where a Black man was beaten by police in a restaurant in a case of mistaken identity. People might look to those two incidents, and I just pulled those out specifically because that's what made the news. But one might question because of that, whether things actually have improved. So I understand that one of the initiatives that your organization, Leaders of Kenosha, fights for daily is an immediate end to police brutality and the murder of Black Americans. And so through the lens of your work with this organization, as it pertains to police community relations, what is the current landscape of the relationship between Black Kenosha residents and the police? What have you all kind of been up against when it comes to fighting to end police brutality. So in 2020, we know George Floyd was brutally murdered, but then we also witnessed Breonna Taylor brutally murdered by white officers. So can't forget about Breonna Taylor. So in Kenosha, you mentioned a couple of incidents that have made the news national news. We have continued to um, meet with the administration, city administration, more specifically chief of police and people on his team to continue to speak about the issues that black and brown people are coming to me about in terms of how Kenosha police officers are interacting with black and brown people within the community. We do have a new chief, Chief Patton. He is very open to conversations 
very open to um, saying that he wants to ensure equity within the community. But with these incidents that are happening, you know, I'm very concerned about what is being said versus what is actually happening within the police force and how it translates and equates into how the police officers are acting within the community. I get calls, videos about incidents that are going on within the community in terms of the police are continuing to be harsh and excessive force and just kind of running rogue and doing what they want to do, which is very problematic. Back in 20, the mayor convened the Kenosha Roadmap, and I was a part of the police and policy procedure subgroup. We went through the police department's policy and procedures, you know, what their excessive force policy looked like, just a host of things. And we came up with some really, really, really good recommendations for the administration, but nothing really panned out of that which that was very, we were pretty upset about that. We worked very hard. We spent a lot of time, um, a lot of energy and hours working on ensuring that the policies and procedures that the Kenosha Police Department are implementing or practicing on a daily basis work for everyone in this community and not just for some. I wish I could say three years later, that we've made these leaps and bounds and, you know, policing is very different in this community. But after seeing what happened to this young African-American family at Applebee's on July 20th, I continue to question what is being said. So it's troublesome. You know, we continue to call for complete transparency, you know, Black and brown people in this community deserve to live with racist free policing, to be able to go out and move out freely without being profiled and attacked. We continue to condemn KPD's actions in the level of violence and excessiveness and frankly, just police brutality. It needs to be stopped. We're calling for answers and accountability. Every police officer that acts in this manner should not be on the police force. You talk about having a new chief who seems like they're interested in improving relationships and transparency in, you know, making sure that there are positive experiences with police, but like that action doesn't follow up with what's being said. Going back to what you said that, you know, you wish you could say all these leaps and bounds were made. Like you mentioned that the subgroup you were part of and going through policies and procedures and just working really hard on trying to make change and like you're not really seeing all of that effort that, you know, you and the community members put in, you're not seeing tangible results of that. And I know that is very disappointing, but it's real to say that the change that you are fighting for and still want is just not, coming to fruition, really. And so, you know, I do sit back all the time and I self-reflect and, you know, how do I hold myself accountable? You know, what am I doing 
in this process to make sure that I'm hearing people correctly, you know, that I am seeing things from a lens that's not clouded and judged, right? Because I am a Black person and I'm a Black woman. So this personally affects me, right? When I listen to people and I see things happening, you know, that fear is real. And, you know, I had a press conference and I asked this question directly into the camera, like, what are you so afraid of? What is it that, you know, that fear evokes in you this, this violence, you know, against a race of people that you fear and you, and you have these preconceived notions and you have all these stereotypes in your head of what you think we're like when in actuality, if you just had conversations, right? Because that's just the human experience. That's how you get to know people. That's how you get to understand. That would be true community policing, right? You don't just come in, you just ride around, you intimidate, you know, you're seen as the boogeyman. Like what happened to police officers getting out and talking and really understanding what's happening in the lives of people in the community that you're basically targeting. And I live in the uptown community. I've been here for 20 plus years and I wouldn't want to live anywhere else in this city. I love my community. And there are beautiful people here who have a lot to contribute to this community, but they're often villainized or vilified and just seen as, oh, you know, those people or, you know, just all these very upside down thinking processes about people that you have no understanding about when you could just simply have a conversation and begin to understand because that's where it's all going to begin. So that's why we've worked tirelessly to have these conversations with this, you know, with the administration, because people in this community are just like me. People want their kids to be able to go outside and play and be safe. And, you know, I have two African-American sons, you know, when they get in the car, like I always have angst and it should not be that way. I have three African-American grandsons. One will be driving in a couple of years. And I worry about that still to this day. And no one should have to live in such a heightened sense of stress. Um, that's not, not good for anyone's mental. It's just not good for a community. You talked about these Kenosha police officers just having this fear of Black folks and it leading to this excessive force. And I'm wondering if you think, even with the chief of police saying he's interested, right, in improving conditions, but that action is not being backed up. Do you think that's a priority? I have to remain hopeful mm. that it is. But in this moment in time, I want to say this. I personally believe that our chief, that this is important to him, right? Yeah. That there's just a sense of peace within the community. But I don't know if that is an overall arching feeling from city administration, 
down to his police officers. Now, do I, I have a nephew that's on the police force. So do I, I know some great cops, right? right. Not all of them are that way, but that, that culture that they are a part of has bred what we see throughout this country in terms of, you know, they're so protected. So when they do do things, you know, they just feel untouchable. The chief needs to, in my opinion, just really set a tone. He's a new chief, right? And he kind of has a clean slate and he can do what he feels needs to be done and that will bring his police department to a level where they are seen as people that are respected within the community, not feared. Yeah. Um, and that's just what it should be. So I guess my final question is what do, and I think you kind of touched on it throughout our conversation. What do black Kenosha residents like really need from police that they just aren't getting? You know, we need to be treated with dignity, respect, compassion, empathy, and those things are lacking. We know historically, Black and brown people often get the short end of the stick, Mm -hmm. just simply based on the color of our skin and nothing else. But when you are able to move from a space of dignity, respect, compassion, and empathy, like that just changes conversations. Like, I don't know, you know, we live in an age where, you know, we have the internet, you have access to everything and people and, you know, where is that, that hunger, that thirst, that curiosity to know a person on a deeper level, especially when you're in a career that you hope to keep probably until you retire. So that means you could be in a community, you know, 20, 30 years, and you don't know the people, like you should feel really disheartened by that personally, right? You know, in my profession, if I'm working with people and I just don't know people, then what have I been doing, right? Because part of, keeping the community safe is understanding the community. And when you don't understand, how do you truly help? I feel if true community policing was to happen, that we could make some traction because you're gonna know the person, you're humanizing them, you hear their story. It's not just a homeless person on the corner or someone with mental health issues, like they're still people. And if we all would just get back to that mindset, we'd be okay. And until that happens, we're going to continue to see more instances like Jacob Blake, more instances like the young family at Applebee's, more instances like the young lady in a middle school, you know, you know, it's just going to continue to happen day in and day out. And the only people that are going to suffer behind it are the people within the community and taxpayers, because we're going to have to pick up the bill for this really, really brutal, tragic behavior that police officers are exhibiting within our community. Tanya McLean is the executive director of Leaders of Kenosha. The organization was created in response to Jacob Blake being shot by police three years ago. 
She spoke with WUWM's race and ethnicity reporter, Taryn Powell. And did you know you can listen to Lake Effect as a podcast? Search for Lake Effect wherever you get your podcasts to download and listen on demand. You can also follow WUWM on Instagram, where you'll find videos and pictures from news stories and Lake Effect interviews. In about 15 minutes, we'll hear from members of the Milwaukee Anti-War Committee about the changes they want to see in our community. But first, with the Republican debate in Milwaukee, Wisconsin is being put in the political spotlight. We'll hear what voters think next on Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. to Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM. I'm Joy Powers. The first Republican presidential debate takes place in Milwaukee tonight. It's still a bit unclear how many of the candidates in the race will take the stage, but we do know that former President Donald Trump will not be one of them. The debate kicks off a lead-up to the Republican National Convention, which will be held in Milwaukee next summer and the presidential election later that fall. With such a spotlight on Milwaukee and Wisconsin, a well-known swing state, we wanted to get an idea of how voters are feeling, what issues are on their minds, and how they feel about the candidates. WUWM's Ma'ayan Silver recently spoke to people at the Brookfield Farmers Market. Brookfield is in Waukesha County, which traditionally leans Republican, but voting trends there have started to shift in recent elections. You'll hear first from a local poll worker. What's your name? Uh, Ellen Lindop. Where do you usually vote? Swing, Democrat, Republican? Uh, well, over the years I have voted both parties, but I would say in the last 10 years I only vote Democrat. And why is that? Uh, just because I feel the views of the Republican Party are just far too extreme for me. And is that mostly based around Donald Trump? Uh, Donald Trump, but even before Donald Trump, you could start to see the party go too far right. And so what, what are the issues important to you? Well, I think everyone's top of mind, reproductive rights, and basically our freedoms. You know, the Republican Party talks about freedom, and I feel they're the ones taking our freedoms away. So it's really all about freedom. And um, are you hearing from people in Brookfield who tend to lean conservative that they have misgivings right now about what's going on in the Republican Party? Well, that's interesting because I am a poll worker and I'm very active in the Waukesha Dems. I just actually came from a meeting, a two-hour meeting, and it's interesting. This is a red district, and I would say when I moved here 30 years ago, 20% would vote maybe Democratic. Joe Biden won 45% in 2020. He had to do it with Republican votes because we don't have 45% Democrats in Brookfield. So. Republicans are, at least in this district, swinging, uh, at least in the presidential election for, for, for Democrats. Go ahead and tell me your name. Mark Steele. And where do you live? In Brookfield. And what's your, where's your head at? Do you vote Republican? I do. If Trump's the nominee, would that, would that be in line with what you would like? Yes. And um, what are your big issues? Uh, the economy, the border, jobs, foreign affairs. And is there anything that Trump has done that gives you pause or nothing? Well, I'll put it to you like this. He's, he's not the most uh, eloquent of people, 
but he gets the job done. And he doesn't, I don't need him to be my best friend. I don't need him to be eloquent. I just need him to get the job done. And in my opinion, we're in deep doggy doo-doo. What's your name? John McCorvey. Where's your head at politically? Politically, you know, I think uh, for sure anti-right um, and don't know about leftist policies. And have you ever voted Republican? Yeah, I'm from Texas. <laughs> and when was the last time you voted Republican? 2000. And what's your take on the Republican candidates right now? Uh, don't think too much about them because if they don't get rid of Trump, then I don't think they're going to be able to do anything uh, progressive or whatever their platform is. Trump has taken over the platforms, I think. And what are the important issues to you? Um, definitely in this state, uh, uh, reproductive rights, legalization of marijuana, you know, more liberalist ideas, but also the problem, at least in this state, is the Republicans are not allowing the surplus to be spent where it needs to be spent. That's the biggest issue I have with this state right now. And what's your take on the political identity of Wisconsin? <laughs> Again, I think it's one of these battleground states. It's really interesting uh, in terms of sort of how you get very far right. And then you kind of have, I think this county sort of have people who sort of meet in the middle in some of the issues, but unfortunately they will never give or budge or something like that. And same thing goes for liberalism ideas and whatnot. Um, so again, the discourse, the rationalization of whatever issue was diversity, improving diversity and improving, uh, you know, schooling systems, either in Milwaukee County and whatnot, people don't want to hear about it. Our issues are completely different. Um, but on some of the issues such as reproductive rights, at least we're talking about it. Go ahead and tell me your name. Kathy Rusk. Where's your head at politically? Do you tend to vote Republican, Democrat, swing? Well, usually I'm an independent, but lately it's been hard to be an independent because there's not a whole lot of choice. And have you ever voted Republican? When was the last time? Gosh, I think I did, but it was pre-COVID. I don't remember how long ago. Probably before 2016. But you didn't vote for Trump? No. Either time? No. And why is that? Because I think he's dangerous, and I could tell that even the first time he ran. And what are the issues important to you? This is why I'm an, I'm an independent, because I care both about national defense, uh, strong defense, and about social issues, uh, social welfare programs, the safety net. Those are all important things. And so right now, would there be any chance that you would vote Republican at this point? They cannot be trusted, because the minute you think someone's going to stand up for something that's morally appropriate, then they bend and back Trump. So I can't trust any of them right now, and it's really difficult to make decisions. And how does reproductive rights fit into anything? I would say that I'm pro-life. Um, I appreciate it being on a state level rather than a federal level because on a federal level it gets a bit too divisive and it shadows other issues that are important. I see. So that would, that would be an issue that would make you lean Republican? I don't tend to use it to choose my voting priorities. I tend to use it as more of a moral issue rather than a voting issue. My name is Jen Koch. Are you a swing voter, Republican, Democrat? Um, I've actually swung more to being a Democratic voter. Previously, I did vote more conservatively, but um, I've been turned off by that party's politics, and I'm definitely more liberal. And what are the top issues for you? Um, I believe 
that people should have access to health care, affordable health care, in a timely manner. I think women's rights are very paramount. I mean, I'm a mother of three daughters, so I think a lot of that is private medical decisions between um, a patient and their provider, and I don't believe politics really plays a role in it. Um, I believe in social programs. People need a, a hand up. And do you feel like the recent decisions on abortion have propelled you even stronger yes. towards? Yes, absolutely. And why is that? I don't think it's anyone's business. I, you know, I don't think that you should be leg legislating healthcare decisions like that. That should be a private decision. It doesn't affect the people who are screaming the loudest. And are you finding that other women in Brookfield, you're hearing from them even if they tend to lean conservative? Yes. Okay, go ahead and tell me your name. Ray, Kelly. Are you like a swing voter? Do you do you vote Republican, Democrat? Um, registered Republican, but uh, I listen to or I listen to what they say and vote accordingly. Where's your head at when it comes to these Republican candidates? I I haven't seen the stuff from most of them. I've been enjoying watching the DeSantis Trump barbs go back and forth. Truth be told, I want to see them. I want to see the two of them like debate each other to see if somebody hands them a folding chair and says, have at it. So you will probably vote for one of them, you're thinking? Probably not. But I like I, I voted for Trump the first time, learned my lesson. <laughs> so so you might actually vote for Biden? Yeah, I, well, I, I voted for him last time. We'll see who's in the running. And what what brought you against Trump? Uh, it's not so much against Trump. I gave him four years, and I didn't think he accomplished anything. And um, is that economically or anything else? Uh, more or less altogether. They give him credit for the Middle East, but that didn't look so well afterwards either. And what are the big issues important to you? Big issues for me right now, more or less the economy and inflation. Gotcha. I don't, think, I don't think any of the candidates are going to get that under control. I'm Joseph. And then Reese. Uh, so I'm I'm a I'm on Team Trump. Um, I've gone back and forth. Um, I've voted for Libertarian before, and I still like a lot of their policies, but they just don't got enough backing yet to um, you know get get there. So that being said, I I, um, I vote Republican right now. So. And what are the issues important to you? Uh, Personal freedom and, uh, you know, the, the economy, uh, the prices of just like food and, and gas are just way too high. Um, but yeah, just personal freedom. People should be able to do what they want within reason, you know. My name is Sarah Cappert. Are you a swing voter? Do you vote Democrat, Republican? I have voted Democrat in every election since I turned 18. You've never missed an election? Nope. But yet you live in a pretty predominantly conservative area. It actually was really different in the 2020 election. There were only two Trump signs in our neighborhood. Everything else was Biden, um, which was really interesting because then our area, like Waukesha County, ended up being much more blue than it normally is. So basically, you're a lifelong Democrat. What are the issues that are important to you? Uh, women's health, uh, like abortion, reproductive rights. I want to make sure that my daughter has the same access to health care and autonomy over her own body when she's my age that I did. Um, so that's huge for me. Uh, social issues, making sure that we have social supports for folks who need it. Um, it always worries me that they're trying to force folks to have kids, but then strip away the safety nets that helps folks to raise those kids. Um, those are the big ones, women's issues, number one. I think the vibe seems a lot different in the last couple of years as reproductive rights have become more of an issue. I think 
that's turning folks who identify the same way that I do. Like white suburban moms are starting to come to the left a little bit as they're coming after women's rights. That was WUWM's Maian Silver speaking with voters at the Brookfield Farmers Market. variety of protest groups are expected in downtown Milwaukee, demonstrating against the Republican primary debate taking place at Pfizer Forum. Members of the Milwaukee Anti-War Committee will be among those protesting. We'll hear now from two members. Frazad Goetze is working on an upcoming campaign at a Milwaukee high school. And Sarah Onitsuka has a very personal connection to this month's anniversary of the atomic bombs being dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. WUWM's Chuck Kornbach begins by asking Anitska about her Japanese ancestry. One side of my family um, survived Japanese internment camps in the U.S. during World War II, and the other side survived the U.S. air raids in Japan. And so I kind of have almost a, a mixed heritage and ancestry when it comes to where my family was located during World War II, so kind of straddling the U.S. and Japan. These were grandparents or uh, mother and father? Yeah, my grandparents um, were alive during World War II, and so they were the ones in the camps and um, surviving the U.S. air raids in Japan. Well, Sarah, talk a little bit about a visit you made to Hiroshima, uh, what you saw, what uh, were your thoughts, and how the visit has changed you. So as a child, I attended Japanese immersion school, and I took a couple of trips to Japan. And during my middle school trip, I was able to visit the Peace Memorial Park and the Atomic Bomb Museum in Hiroshima. So that was where I was able to see, you know, the displays that were shown of the horrific effects of the bombs on the human body. And this was definitely a lot to take in as a child, but I do clearly remember a lot of the exhibits because they really shook me. One of them was a life-size display of the victims, which included women and children walking around after the bombs had had blown up um, with their skin, you know, melting off of their bodies. Um, I think they even had the sounds of people, you know, screaming and crying out for help as well. And so it was really something that has stuck with me to this day that I think I remember more than a lot of things uh, that I remember from that time. Yeah, that's a powerful childhood memory. Um, Do you still think about the visit? I do, especially when the anniversaries of the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki come around every year in August. It's something that I really think about. I think about it a lot whenever the U.S. is intervening and invading other countries as well. And I see the types of horrific effects that come from the U.S. bombs that are dropped in other countries. It's definitely something that's on my mind. You know, obviously, the U.S. thinking at the time, uh, 1945, was that dropping the bombs, the atomic bombs, would shorten the war, eventually save lives. Uh, 78 years later, what do you think of that rationale? Unfortunately, that rationale still persists to this day. 
So when I was in high school, I actually remember that my AP US government textbook described the bombings as, quote unquote, an awesome event. And this was after I had already visited the sites, seen all of the displays of the damage that had been done. And I really couldn't fathom that sort of narrative back then. And I still can't either. It's a fact that the U.S. military was aware that Japan was already planning to surrender before the bombs were dropped. So it's really unfortunate, I believe, that many people in the U.S. still think that it was necessary. I've seen criticism over the years that after the first bomb was dropped, the point had been made, if you will, by the U.S. military, and that Nagasaki was a lot of more people questioned that. Is that the way you have seen it as well? Well, I don't think that either of the bombs were actually necessary. I think, obviously, the, the second one, the point had definitely already been made if there was one to make. But I do still believe that the first bomb didn't need to happen either. We're talking as the Oppenheimer movie is out in the theater, of course, about Robert Oppenheimer, a key developer of the atomic bomb what about the current interest in the development of the bomb? Does that help the peace movement? Does it help you process what went on, or what is your reaction? I haven't seen Oppenheimer, so I don't want to comment specifically on what it covered or it didn't cover. I've been seeing some of the discourse where some people are saying, you know, it didn't include the narratives of the people killed by the bombs in Hiroshima and Nagasaki and indigenous peoples in New Mexico at Los Alamos, um, where the bomb was created, were left out as well. I think I can understand where those questions are coming from, for sure. So I'm not sure exactly what is going to come out of discussion from the movie, but I do really want the common understanding in the U.S. to move away from thinking that dropping the atomic bombs was necessary. And so coming out of this, I would really love for people to get involved more in anti-war work, um, to show up to what the Milwaukee Anti-War Committee, for example, is currently working on. So we've been talking about the peace movement. It comes at a time when the U.S. government has certainly stepped up its weapons support for Ukraine against Russia. Is it a difficult time for the peace movement, or are you sort of saying this is the time for the peace movement? I think that this is a great time to get involved. The U.S. is pretty much always involved intervening in other countries, so there's never a time when there's nothing going on, I would say, for us to get involved in. But I do think that tensions are rising, and specifically the U.S. continues to make these situations more complicated and more difficult with its involvement as well. And so I think that for that reason, it's a really good opportunity Unfortunately, obviously, a prime time, nevertheless, for those of us who are interested to get involved in this movement. And I think specifically as residents of the U.S., we do have a particular responsibility to protest our own government at this time. Okay, I want to bring Farzad into the discussion. Please uh, talk about an upcoming Milwaukee anti-war committee campaign to reduce or eliminate the J-R-O-T-C program in some schools. Uh, where all is it held in the schools now, and what would you like to see happen? Uh, so currently, the campaign that we're working on is to specifically remove the J-R-O-T-C from Hamilton High School, uh, which is a Milwaukee high school. And 
like a lot of military recruitment, which is also impacting a lot of these high schools, JROTC program essentially acts as a funnel from these impoverished neighborhoods and set them up for a career in the military. And a substantial portion of the military in this country is due to what, you know, what people refer to as a poverty draft. People who are otherwise overexploited, they don't have the ability to you know, find good jobs, find good employment due to their circumstances. And the military preys upon these people to fill their ranks. So our campaign is to try and eliminate these predatory programs, replace them with something that this country also needs, which is potentially some trade union programs, working with engineers, linemen, plumbing, any kind of these things that are very essential for keeping this country running that are going to help a lot more people than, for example, going off and joining the military. You know, you see it all the time. All these these trades are desperate for people and having more peaceful and, you know, actually beneficial job for these kids is what we're, we're hoping for. Is this effort something you have to take before the MPS school board to get them to change policy? So we have to discuss with the school board that, is, that oversees Hamilton I get the teachers involved, get the students involved, um, get a real public support for the program. But then, yes, eventually it would have to go and and they'd have to make this decision, um, you know, for themselves at Hamilton High School, whether or not they're going to keep these programs. Okay. Do you think it's an uphill battle or how confident are you? In terms of our confidence, um, this is one of the first major campaigns that we're engaging in in the city because we are just a very new organization. However, we have high hopes for success. We are working with uh, MTEA, the Multi Teachers Association, the union there. And so we're hoping to get some popular support there as well among the students and the parents of these kids who obviously don't want these types of programs in their schools preying upon their children. ROTC has been controversial dating back to at least Vietnam. Um, you know, the U.S. military apparently believes we need future soldiers to protect the nation. Is there some good that comes from programs like JROTC in the way of keeping the future peace, preventing war? I think if you look at the past, so the country is 246 years old, and we've been at war for the past 228 of them. To say that the United States is a force for peace in the world, I think, is ignoring the facts of history, the facts of most wars that we've been involved with, You know, especially after World War II. They have not been to, to serve peace. They've been entirely undemocratic. They've been um, against the wishes of the people in those countries. And so in terms of keeping the peace, I, I would just have to question the, that premise right, right from the start. Sarah or Farzad, did you want to add other efforts that your group is part of? And as part of our anti-war work, we work with a lot of other groups, um, including the March on the RNC, which is a group that is planning to protest the RNC next year in 2024 when they're being hosted in Milwaukee. The March on the RNC Coalition is also hosting a protest there, which we will be a part of to show our support there. As the RNC has also has a lot of ties to you know, the military and industrial complex and, and how they continue to perpetuate war. And you know, of course, Democrats play their hand as well. But since the RNC is going to be here in our city, we're going to uh, show up and show them that they are not welcome. Prasad Gotsi and Sarah Onitska are members of the Milwaukee Anti-War Committee, which is protesting the Republican primary debate in Milwaukee. 
Coming up, we'll explore a few Wisconsin caves that you can visit around the state. That's next on Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM. I'm Joy Powers. Wisconsin is home to more than 400 caves, each with their own unique features and formations. In this month's Milwaukee Magazine, writer Kevin Revelinski explores a few of the state's many caves, and he joins me now to share a few of those picks. Kevin, thank you so much for being here on Lake Effect. Thanks for having me on. Now, I don't think of Wisconsin as having a lot of caves, but of course we have many of them. But uh, for people who may not end up in caves all that often, what are your top tips for visiting one? You have to dress for a cold temperature, first off. It's usually somewhere in the 50s underground. It doesn't matter the season. It's, it's going to be in the 50s, so that's kind of neat. But in the middle of the summer, you're going to want to have pants and a jacket and um, a lot of them are wet. They drip on you. So you might want to take that into consideration. Uh, most of the ones that people visit are commercial caves. So they've got stairs and railings for some of the trickier parts. So you're not crawling around like, uh, you know, I guess a true spelunking adventure. But um, you probably don't want to wear clothes that might get dirty because you can brush up against things. But there's also the matter of um, the white nose uh, syndrome for the bats. So some of the caves may have warnings about, you know, after you've been in the cave, you should make sure that your clothes and boots are completely clean so that you don't spread it and you don't bring it to the next cave. That's kind of an unusual tip now in, in recent years since that uh, disease has, has kind of devastated the, the bat population. Sure. So let's get into this list of caves. Uh, we have the first one on here, uh, one probably most people know about, uh, Cave of the Mounds. What makes this so popular? Its accessibility is it's very beautiful. It's easy to get to off the highway near Blue Mounds. It's a national landmark, as a matter of fact, and it's it's about 750 feet in. And uh, like I said, you don't have to crawl around in these kind of caves. So it's it's nice to be able to take uh, kids in there without worrying about somebody falling down a hole or something. Some of the colors there are unusual, and that's the effect of special bacteria that leaves stains on, on the rock. So that's, you know, I think the attractiveness of that particular cave. Now, uh, the second cave I've actually heard of as well, I will say in my mind's eye, this is like a cave made of glass, but I know that that's not accurate. Uh, it is called Crystal Cave, and it is, in fact, the longest cave in the state. Yeah, that's, they, they claim that at about one mile. It's deeper than the underground than Cave of the Mounds, maybe almost double. And um, it has crystals in there that like you know, quartz kind of crystals, sugar-like kind of formations that are on the wall, and that's where it got its name. It's also a destination in itself because it has a lot of activities above ground. You know, the caves want to keep people coming back and uh, entertain the kids, so they have things like uh, mini golf there and some uh, trails and such. Now, the next one we're going to look at, it's in, I believe, the Driftless 
region of Wisconsin. If you haven't been there, you should really check it out. It is oddly very un-Wisconsin-like for a part of Wisconsin. That's an odd thing to say, but uh, (laughs) it is also home to Eagle Cave. Yeah, and um, to be clear, I think all three of the ones that I'm thinking of here that, that we named are in the Driftless area. That those are places that didn't get you know run over by glaciers. Part of the reason these things still exist, I suppose. But yeah, Eagle Cave has translucent rocks, so um, it's called onyx. I always thought that that was something that was just typically black. I don't know where I got that. I guess there is a black onyx, but. The, the minerals allow the light to get through, and um, it looks a little bit like agates. It's another old cave, um, show cave or commercial cave. It's been around for a long time. This is unusual in that a lot of kids have camped in it. So you, you get groups like Boy Scout groups or school groups, Girl Scouts, that go there and camp for the night underground, which, you know, some might find that an awesome adventure others might think you cold (laughs) and damp but um, I think as a kid it's got to be a real treat for sure now I believe the next couple of caves that we're going to look at they're actually I think both chains of caves and in a slightly different part of the state. Uh, we'll start with Maribel Caves. It's a it's a chain of caves that you can explore. As someone with limited cave experience, it's hard for me to conceptualize what that looks like. Can you can you explain kind of how a chain of caves work? Sure. It, it's they form typically from water dissolving minerals, and it depends on the layout of those minerals how those caves would be shaped and the and the, and the amount of water that flows through them. So essentially, you've got multiple entries in, in the case of Maribel, and this is kind of a I, I like to think of it as a public cave in process. Uh, it's not entirely open to the public. You can't just walk up and go into all of it. You can in some places. Other parts of the of the system have gates over them, so you need to go to the, the, the county park website and schedule an appointment where volunteers uh, will guide you into these caves. But this is going to be something where you're probably going to get dirty and you might do a little crawling around. I've seen that they they take volunteers on certain days to go in and clear some of the rubble out because parts of the caves were actually filled with uh, glacial till after the ice age. So they're they're removing that rock to see just how big these caves are. So that's, I think, kind of exciting. You know, very different from, you know, just walking up and paying a few dollars and going down in a cave with steps. Sure. Now, when you say glacial till, what does that mean? Ah, that's the rubble and sand and, and deposits left behind by the, the last retreat of the glaciers. I never liked the word retreat. It sounded like it literally moved backwards, but it was melting. And all that runoff was leaving uh, sediments here and there uh, throughout the state, which is called drift. And uh, that's why we say driftless area. That's the area that didn't have any of those melting glaciers. Now, the Maribel Caves are in a different part than the driftless region. Is that right? Yeah, it's it's over by Manitowoc, so not far off of uh, Lake Michigan there. So Hence the glacial till. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and it's it's also part of the Niagara Escarpment, and that's uh, kind of an unusual geological formation that stretches from Wisconsin all the way to Niagara Falls. That's the name, Niagara. And what it is is some very hard rock, like dolomite, that was underlaid with a softer rock, 
And so what happens with this large expanse of rock is the underside of it erodes at the edges and undercuts that hard rock, which then kind of cracks off and, and erodes that way. So you get these, these cliff edges. A lot of Door County is like that. And you can see like ledge view in some places up and around Green Bay area where you can actually see it off the highway. You see a ridge that's stretching along as you're driving. So the final cave that we'll look at is, again, in another part of the state. It's in Door County, and it's called Cave Point. Right. And and as I just said with the escarpment, this is another example of that uh, type of rock. This county park is actually nestled into uh, Whitefish Dunes State Park. When you go there, you can see that the lake has carved out, eroded underneath that harder rock. And so you've got all these caves alongside the water that the, the waves can roll into and kind of make a little thundering sound or, or uh, throw up jets of water through little cracks in the rock. You know, very similar. It's different rock, I think, than uh, the Apostle Islands. That's more sandstone, but um, similar in, in terms of the, uh, of the formation of it. But yeah, this is just right out. You just pull right up to it and there's a parking area and you can walk to the edge and look down over those caves. Uh, paddlers will go on excursions along the shoreline and kind of duck into those as well. They're not very deep, um, as I said, uh, with all the caves not necessarily being, you know, 100, 200, 900 feet underground. Uh, this, these get daylight, especially uh, when the sun rises. Um, they're facing east, so kind of a neat area. Lights up the water and you can look down and the crystal green water and the, the waves rolling into those caves. It's quite uh, extraordinary. So unlike some of the other caves, this is something that you're not exactly climbing into, maybe maybe paddling into. That That is correct. I have seen people jump off the cliffs into the water. I don't know if that's encouraged or allowed, <laughs> but um, the water is, is deep enough where it's carved out that cave. So I guess people do swim in there. All right. Well, Kevin, thank you so much for joining us here on Lake Effect and sharing all of these fun caves to explore. Uh, Hopefully some of our listeners will head out and uh, check out some parts of the state they may not have seen before. Yeah, that's great. Thanks for having me on. Kevin Revolinsky is a writer whose piece on Wisconsin Caves was featured in this month's Milwaukee Magazine. And that wraps up today's show. Thank you so much for being here with us. I'm Joy Powers. If you missed any of today's conversations, or if you'd like to take Lake Effect on the go, you can download our podcast. Just search for Lake Effect wherever you get your podcasts to listen to all of our shows on demand. Tomorrow on Lake Effect, we'll hear from a Democratic and a Republican strategist on how they plan to win Wisconsin over in the 2024 election. Plus, we'll explore the art scene in Eau Claire. That's tomorrow at noon, right here on Lake Effect. On listener-supported 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. NPR.